Uh, yeah, yesterday, you know, uh, the family and I, we, uh, we actually went to a community event at a park. And it was a 9-11 remembrance ceremony honoring the memory of, of those that we lost on that day 20 years ago. It's amazing that times passed by so fast for those of us who were around for that. Uh, it was also a remembrance of the courage of the first responders, the men and the women who served with the fire and police departments and the various medical uh, crews and, and, of course, those who also served with the military. All of them responded that day to save human lives. And, and they saved many. And it's one of those moments that's kind of etched in everyone's mind. You kind of know where you were, you know, on that day, on that moment. Uh, one example of some of the rescuing that, that took place that, that I'm most fascinated by is actually what the Coast Guard did. You know, I feel like Coast Guard doesn't get a lot of credit sometimes, people, but the Coast Guard did some amazing stuff that day. We had one person applying. See, that's what I'm talking about. They don't get a lot of credit. You know, okay, yeah, we can't even do that. Yeah, it's great, yeah. But... Um, they uh, organized and coordinated sort of an ad hoc armada of ferries, yachts, and tugboats that evacuated a massive amount of people off of the uh, south shore of Manhattan Island. Um, and to put it in perspective, you guys are aware of the, the Dunkirk evacuation of 1940, World War II, when, when all those soldiers were rescued, the British and French and Belgian soldiers, and, and private vessels went across the English Channel and took them from France. They rescued 338,226 soldiers over uh, a nine-day span. This effort to rescue people off the southern shore of Manhattan transported 500,000 people in less than nine hours. I mean, it was an accomplishment. And so as we were there at the park, it was a very moving time to remember the, the many freedoms that we enjoy to this day, one of which we're enjoying actually right now in this moment. And uh, to realize that freedom's not normal from a historical standpoint. It's not normal from a contemporary world standpoint. As we kind of continue along with this uh, 245-year-old grand experiment, as one of the founders called it, called the United States of America, and as I was there, I just thinking about these things, I was grateful for, for God's providence and, and, uh, and the way he's placed me and my family here. You know, we're told in the Bible that he appoints the times and boundaries of our habitation. And, uh, but I also was kind of thinking about this. You know what? By his grace, all who are in Jesus have a dual citizenship. Isn't that amazing? But this citizenship is way better than being part of any earthly country because it's a part of being a part of what the writer of Hebrews calls, quote, a better country that is a heavenly one. And so today we're concluding our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and as we do so, Jesus is on the hillside of the shores of the Sea of Galilee where there's various kinds of citizens from various kinds of nations. Most were Jewish. Others were Gentiles of various sorts. Either kind of person could also obtain Roman citizenship in various ways, some by birth, others by financial transaction. But there were also a ton of political views in the crowd, even amongst the smaller group of his disciples. There were zealots who sought to overthrow Rome by force. There were also loyalists who worked hard within the system to obtain as much as they could. To all of them, Jesus proclaims, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has come. And he describes a new citizenship. A citizenship open to everyone, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity, economic status, or social standing. And he describes them what it means to live as a kingdom citizen. And so today, 
we're going to travel through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And we'll conclude with the celebration of the Lord's table. But my goal for us in this time is that we would see more and more what it means to be brought into this citizenship of this better country and what it means to live it out each day. And so uh, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. So whatever you use to look at the scriptures, be it on paper or on a screen, be ready to either flip or swipe quickly uh, because we're going to cover a lot. And uh, we're going to be looking at those different elements of the life of a kingdom citizen. So go ahead and if you wouldn't open to Matthew 5. And uh, as this is God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read, beginning with verse 1. When the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds. We ask that your spirit would take these words that he's recorded so that we would be different people. Make us men and women who love you, walk with you, are enraptured with the amazing work you've done to save us. May we live as kingdom citizens in this dark world for your glory and that others would come and join in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, the risen King. Amen. You may be seated. So as Jesus here is describing the life of a kingdom citizen, uh, the first thing that we would see very clearly is that it's the, it's the citizen's joy, the kingdom citizen's joy. Uh, that's the first thing we would find here in, uh, in verses 3 through 12. And you're thinking, well, why, am I, why would that be all about the, the kingdom citizen's joy? Well, it, that word blessed, that's really what it means. He starts every line with this word blessed. And, and really that comes from the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament. The same term is utilized. And it communicates this idea of, of overwhelming wonder and joy being experienced by the person. Uh, it's the idea of how rich and full is the life of the one who. It's a fullness that goes beyond uh, mere circumstance. It's a fullness that, that, that goes to the core of someone's being because of how they're related to Yahweh. And so he says here how blessed it is 
And so we're looking at the kingdom citizen's joy. And, and when we were in this section, you might recall, we talked about this at length. We took each beatitude here, each blessed statement known as the beatitudes. And we described what a life of deeply rooted joy looks like as Jesus just you know, opens it up for us here. And we saw several things. And, and by, by the way, if you're a note taker and I'm going too fast, we'll get these slides posted on the website. So don't worry about having to write everything down quickly because we're going to fly here. But uh, we saw that a life of deeply rooted joy begins when you recognize you're a spiritual beggar, grows when you grieve the depths of your sin, shows as gentleness overrides your speech and actions. It fills as your appetite shifts from sin to righteousness. Uh, We also saw that it shines as mercy received is shared and rewarded. It thrives, this joy thrives as inner purity seeks face-to-face life with God. This joy spreads as peace gained with God is shared with others. And this joy endures as worldly values clash with kingdom values resulting in persecution. That's what it looks like. And we took a long time. We took one week on each of those things. If you were with us at that time, you remember that. We just hammered those things home. But the question uh, that I would want to ask as we look at this again briefly is just, are these qualities growing in you? It's not that have you arrived. Is, is this a part of, of your life? And day by day, are you seeing more of this? And, I, you know, we could pick up several of these. I mean, if we look at, um, you know, verse 7, for example, that this joy shines as mercy is received and shared. I mean, what do we find? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That is, you've received mercy, so you're giving it to other people. I mean, what is mercy? Mercy is not giving someone what's deserved. When you received mercy from God, you know what it means? You did not receive what you deserved. And so when we live amongst others in the same way, that mercy we've received, we share. Just think back on the past week. Has this been a merciful week for you? If we're not Growing in our disposition of mercy towards others, it means we are unaware of the mercy that we've received from the Lord. And we need to repent of that. Um, that last one, the idea of persecution, uh, I don't, I don't, we, we don't like that. And I think especially... Um, for us, as, as even, you know, 21st century American people, oh, you're going to persecute me? Well, <laughs> let me tell you what's going to happen to you. <laughs> but Jesus' depiction of this is, is, is both stirring to us and, and sometimes hard to grasp. If you're persecuted, he says, he gives you two responses right there in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Really? Uh, That phrase for be glad literally means to run around and skip for joy. It's almost like the kid you see in the playground, you know, and they're just kind of like, la, 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 that's it. Are you being persecuted? Wonderful. Now notice, it's not just being persecuted for being persecuted. What is it? It's being persecuted, he says, because of me. 
so many things that Jesus is declaring here. But being exceedingly glad, leaping for ecstasy because of persecution in Jesus. Um, and, and we've seen that term you know, used in different places in Scripture. Um, Abraham's joy in anticipating Christ's day as described in John 8 or the Philippian jailer when his household came to Christ in Acts 16. Um, they're all different ways of this being kind of portrayed in, in, in other places in the Bible. But he gives us reasons for this. It's not just because, oh, I'm being persecuted, wonderful. No, he says very clearly two reasons. First, your reward in heaven is great. So there's this persecution that's demonstrating the genuine nature of your faith. And, and so you're anticipating, you're looking ahead. In other words, you're not living, as one person put it, for the dot of right now. You're living for the line of eternity. And then secondly, you're in good company because the prophets of God of old were treated in the same way. And we can just kind of think back in our minds of different places in the Old Testament where we obviously see that as being true. Jeremiah was placed under vile treatment and he would eventually, according to tradition, be stoned to death by those who forced him uh, to accompany them to Egypt. Ezekiel didn't do much better. Amos was told to flee uh, away and utter his prophecies somewhere else. They were like, get out of here. Why? Because they did not like what they were being told. And so either you uh, change the message to kind of fit better, you know, massage it, tweak it, make it more palatable for those you were speaking to, or you were persecuted. In the same way, Jesus is saying, you don't need to tweak the message to gain hearing or acceptance. No, you declare the truth. And God takes care of you through whatever comes back. That's the blessed life. That's the rich life. That's the full life described here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the life of a kingdom citizen. So for us, rather than flee or run away, and we, we spent a lot of time on that as well when we were in this section, rather than flee from it, instead, we need to abide in Christ through it. It doesn't mean that we're just doormats and we just say, hey, you know, just go ahead and you know, walk on me. No, it means that we speak the truth in love. It takes courage, it takes backbone, and then we receive whatever the consequences are that come from that. But we need to keep moving for the sake of time. Um, the only th- not, not only does Jesus tell us here about the kingdom citizen's joy, he also describes in this sermon the kingdom citizen's light. We find that in the very next verse, really, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus puts it this way, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. We can see here that the kingdom citizen, when they are placed into Jesus, they are grafted into him. They are those who receive from his fullness the joy that exudes through them. But not only that, then it also transforms uh, the area around them because they have an impact on it by 
by showing themselves to be different kinds of people. They live in a different way. They have a different set of priorities. And so one of the ways is, is by dispensing truth. Taking, uh, Jesus talks about sowing the seed of the word in one of his parables. And, and as salt was a preservative against corruption and, um, and, and, and decay, we would see the same thing here with the truth of God's word. We would take that and we spread it around. And, and God's light and salt uh, brings about a, a wonderful way of dealing with ignorance and spiritual blindness and foolishness. And... Uh, and then Jesus uses an absurdity here when he's talking about these pictures. I mean, certainly, saltless salt. It's an inherent contradiction. What, what good is it for? Nothing. Throw it away. Or it's lighting a lamp and then hiding it under a covering. You know, oil is expensive. You wouldn't be in your house and light a lamp and then just cover it so no one could see it. And in the same way, he's saying, you need to live visibly. Allow the radiance of the truth of Jesus and what he's done in your life just flow out of you into the relationships that God's placed you in, into the workplace God's put you in, into the neighborhood God's put you in, in your family, amongst friends, that they would see your good works. This is a way in which we find that our, our faith, our trust in the Lord manifests itself in daily life. It's seen. Uh, it's light. And so saltless salt and a lit lamp placed under a covering are absurd. And claiming kingdom citizenship without living as salt and life as and light is also an absurdity. So we principle that we talked about in that time was this. Genuine kingdom citizens affect the world as salt and light. Um, they do so in many ways. And, and we would see this shown just not only in our daily living in terms of how we uh, care for others and live amongst others and speak the truth in love. We might offend others, but not because of us. Again, it's because of Christ. Um, it's also shown in, in other ways. Our, our righteousness is a different kind of righteousness. And, uh, and Jesus goes on to describe that later in, in chapter 5. He addresses things like anger. And he t- says, if you commit the, the, the act of calling someone a fool or an empty head, you have committed murder in your heart. And we hear something like that and we go... Uh, okay. I've thought way worse than empty head. You know, what's Jesus telling us here? He's saying we've got to deal with issues, not just on the outside. This isn't just external behaviorism. No, it's a heart change. He deals with us from the inside. And, and so he shows us that his standard is greater than we would imagine. And that's why he concludes with, in the earlier section by saying, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because on the outside, they had it together. But he calls them whitewashed tombstones because though they were very squeaky clean on the outside and they could perform well, on the inside, he says, you're full of dead men's bones. So as he's describing these things, he's saying, yeah, anger, ungodly anger. By the way, there's such a thing as godly anger, and we took time to talk about that too. Um, I'd encourage you to 
Go to the website and grab that message. They're all posted there. But ungodly anger is um, not only the, the thing that would lead to anger, but in the heart, it's, it's the act before God of committing murder. And then Jesus says the same thing about other areas of life. He goes on. He talks about sexuality. In verses 27 and following, he says, if you look upon someone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in the heart. And again, we, we look at that and we go, okay, that's a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, certainly, because their whole thing, there were different writings at that time where it was almost like you could look but don't touch was the idea. And Jesus is saying, no. There's a sexual purity that comes from the heart before me. And, uh, and that's, that's the, the, again, the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees from the inside that Jesus brings about and cultivates. We also talked about God's grace for those who sin in these ways, whether it be ungodly anger or, or lust, that they repent and they turn to Jesus and confess their sin, that he forgives and cleanses. And yet the kingdom citizen is going to be growing in these ways. Um, there are other things Jesus talks about through the rest of, of chapter 5, marital integrity and, and keeping our word with our people and, and just these various ways that the light shines out in the way that we relate to other people. These are all elements of relationship here. And um, he goes on in, in verse 38 of chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there if you would. Matthew five thirty-eight. As he continues this theme of relationships with other people and how kingdom citizens relate to one another. And and notice what he says in verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's talking about how the kingdom citizen's light doesn't just radiate and have a pervasive effect on what people think and, what, and how people live and, and caring for those around us, but it also comes out in the way that we relate to other people. Uh, in, in that time, if you were drafted or forced by a Roman centurion to walk the 1,000 paces um, that was, they were legally allowed to have you do that. So you could be walking along, Roman centurion says, hey, you, come here. And you've got to walk these paces. Whatever you're doing, you stop, you have to go. But if it's more than that, you don't have to. Jesus is saying, go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah, you've got your rights, but do more out of love. Who knows? You could be talking to the centurion about Jesus. That's what Paul did. Paul was in prison, and what happens? As a result of being in prison, he's praising God for that. He says, hey, by the way, the Praetorian Guard, lots of them are believers now. Why? Because they're chained to me half the day. (laughs) You think Paul's just going to sit there and, you know, twiddle on his iPhone? No, sorry. He obviously didn't have one of those. He's not going to do that. 
He's going to be talking, sharing, pointing them. Um, you know, what, what are you doing with that centurion when you do that? You're actually saying that you've got another emperor. You're a part of another empire. And you've got principles you're living by that are much stronger, much more robust than that of Rome's. And so what happens is for the believer, Jesus is saying very clearly, the believer, the kingdom citizen, they're going to do startling, unexpected things in the midst of what could be a humiliating and insulting moment for them. Because grace makes him or her seek to win others by love rather than to retaliate based on rights. Maybe you'll recall when we were in this section, we... We, we, we talked about this. When we relate based on rights, we retaliate. When we grasp grace, we give grace. Where are you at today? How were your personal rights violated this week? And how did you respond? Again, there's grace for all those who come and turn to Christ and repent. But Jesus is describing this way of living that's so foreign to us, especially today. So Jesus has described the kingdom citizens' joy and light, and now he moves ahead to also describe the kingdom citizens' ambition. And it's a different kind of ambition Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. Wow. He's also, again, hearkening back to what he said. Your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What were they doing? Look, they were really righteous, they knew the scriptures. They prayed. They gave. They would travel far and wide to share these scriptures with other people. So when Jesus says that, everyone there is going, oh no, we're in trouble. And that's his point. (laughs) Yeah, you are. But I've come to rescue you. And that's why he's going to describe his righteousness. In verse 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's a righteousness that comes from him. It's not yours. It's a gift. That's how we're saved. That's our hope. And yet as we grow in him, we begin living along these lines. Notice through chapter 6 that that phrase, Father, your Father, or our Father, comes up 12 times through the whole chapter. What does that mean? That means all of these things that are described, from giving to praying to fasting, they're all done before him. He's who matters. It doesn't matter what other people think. That's not the point. He also goes on to say in verses 19 and following that confidence 
rests again in that relationship with him, not in the things that we're typically after, perceived security, comfort, wealth. And that's why in, in, in verses 19 and following, he says this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea of moth and rust, it's just the reality of how things work on planet Earth. Uh, Bread becomes moldy. Garments wear out. Fields, if you're not working them really hard in that agrarian culture, they're going to become weed-infested and useless. Walls and fences break down. Roofs cave in. Houses begin to leak. Gold and silver become tarnished and perish. Not to mention everything that comes about in all kinds of other ways. And what, what do we have today? Well, you know, we look at everything from stock markets going up and down to um, houses. Houses that say to you, do you still love me? Do you really love me? Remember when you bought me, how much you loved me? Well, now there's a repair and it's this much. Do you still love me? Uh, inflation. We're feeling it, aren't we, folks? I don't know if you, I'm feeling it. Um, you know, we, we, you're filling up your car now, and you're going, what? <laughs> it was what? You know, banks fail. Um, there's businesses that go belly up. Sometimes you're the business owner, and you couldn't keep it going. All these things, not to mention our bodies. You know, even the strongest bodies wear out, fade away. And, uh, and that's just it. When we come to the end of this short time on this planet, and it is very short. Ecclesiastes tells us that. When we come to the end of this very short time, how tragic is it if we've pinned all of our hopes and dreams on all those things? But with the coming of Jesus, heaven, as one writer put it, touches earth. And when Jesus does that, he shows us that there are treasures available to us in him where none of that stuff happens. They're moth-proof, rust-proof, burglar-proof because they endure forever. And so because of that, we, we can see that God describes for us who he is, what he's doing, and how we can rest in him. Again, your father, your father, your father continues through Jesus' teaching here. Why? Because in him, there's a faithfulness that will never be removed. There's a life that will never end. There's a spring of water that's never going to cease to bubble up from within the one who has come to him by faith, by the Spirit. He's the good shepherd of the sheep. He will never allow one of his sheep to be snatched away. His salvation is a chain that secures those who are in him, and nothing can tear them away from him. There's a love that he gives that can never separate or be separated from those he loves. There's a calling that cannot possibly be revoked. There's a sure foundation that weathers every storm, including the storm of his coming judgment. And so as we look at that, we see that this treasure that's given us um, should be our our complete and full ambition. Where's your ambition at today? What are you after? 
It's very easy to deceive ourselves. And we spent a lot of time on that when we were in this section of Matthew 6. Spiritual self-deception is a real thing. And one of those things that we can see very clearly is when we're after decaying treasures, when that's our focus. So Jesus has shown us the kingdom citizen's joy and light and ambition, and he concludes this amazing sermon by calling us to see the kingdom citizen's distinction. Oh, by the way, I'm going way too fast, though, here. Back to the treasure thing, sorry. There's a quote that I really liked when we were in this section. I want you to hear it again. So back up. All right. Regarding wealth, regarding money. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. Real, real spirituality is not in gathering wealth, but being delivered from loving it. That's important. There's so many falsehoods running around today saying, hey, you name it, you claim it, and if you really trust him, you'll get it. That is the majority, by the way, of what goes as Christianity on planet Earth right now. It's horrifying. Jesus teaches the opposite of that. So again, where's our treasure? What's important to us? What do we daydream about? What do we think about in our mental downtimes? Those are helpful indicators of where our treasure's at and whether or not we can recognize real treasure when we see it. But okay, anyway, like I said, we need to ask ourselves those questions. But again, he concludes now with not just the kingdom citizen's joy, and light and ambition, but lastly, the kingdom citizen's distinction. We find that in chapter 7. We find it in how we relate to one another as a massive distinction, and also what we're really after. And so the first half of the chapter describes how we're different. First thing he says, don't judge so you won't be judged. And, and you're going, well, what's he talking about there? I mean, there was time spent there just to describe, look, there, there is such a thing as discerning. That's a good thing. We want to make distinctions about things. We're called to do that. But this is describing instead what we would call rash judgments. We're really apt to see the flaws in other people, and we're not aware of our own. And a kingdom citizen, as they're growing, they're going to begin to see more and more. No, wait a minute. No, I'm, first of all, I'm not the, the standard of godliness. <laughs> the more we get to know ourselves, I think the more we have to admit that. I was teasing Andrew the other day. We were talking in the office and talking about how much time has passed since we've been here, you know? And it's gone by quick for us. I don't know how you guys feel, <laughs> but it's been fast for us, you know? Um, and we were laughing, and I go, well, it's great, Andrew. It's like any pedestal that I was on, man, I'm like way off it with you by now. He just looks at me and goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad. That's good. You know, like, let's get rid of that quickly, shall we? Uh, just spend a little time with me. It won't take long, trust me. But... But I think that, you know, it's important that we understand that when we're engaging in rash judgments with others, implicit in that is that I am so much above that. And so one of the first steps is going, wait a minute, Lord, help me to see my own faults. And so what Jesus is saying is, you, you know, it's comical, really. The person's got the plank in their own eye. They're walking around. You can just, they're just taking out everything around them. Hey, Chris, what? You know, it's just sort of this... You know, destroying everything around them. They're totally unaware of it. Whereas with their, you know, their brother or sister, there's a little speck. 
Let me help you with that. You know, it's just, it's, it's a, again, absurdity. He's using a comical version of absurdity to show us that uh, that's foolishness. And, um, and so what does he say? Notice he doesn't say don't deal with the speck, but he says deal with, deal with you. Um, I, I think of Galatians 6, chapter 1, where it says, if we have, find a brother or sister in trespass, he says, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. I think that gentleness thing, I don't know. We, we, we kind of take that idea of gentleness and go, oh, that's so wimpy. That's not direct. That's not. No, gentleness actually is very direct. Gentleness is strong. Gentleness, biblically, is strength under control. That's what Jesus is. You know, he's the guy that, that cleared the temple called it my father's house. Uh, the size of the temple complex was about two football fields. He cleared it himself. Yeah, he wasn't wimpy, but he was gentle. He was about other people, caring for them, seeing their need, looking past what they were giving him to the need behind that and addressing them there. And so when we're following him, we're going to follow him in this way of, of gentleness too. We're, we're certainly going to try to help brothers and sisters and take specks out of eyes, but we're going to be aware of the plank that's in our own. And boy, if we treated each other that way, what would that say to the world around us? Because let's face it, when I look in the media and online and in the culture, I see tons of gentleness everywhere. It's a foreign word. It's a foreign concept in our time. We could be beacons of light. And again, with biblical gentleness, it's not wimpy, sort of, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm just going to be a nice person. That's not gentleness. Gentleness is truthfulness in strength with compassion and grace. It means we address things, but we do it in a way that demonstrates how deeply we need Christ ourselves. Again, we're spiritual beggars. We've got nothing to bring. As we've said before, we're, we're all wounded medics on the battlefield. We've got nothing in and of ourselves, but we know where to go for help. And so we're distinct in relationships with others. As we were unpacking this section together, we, we, we saw that really what we're to do is we're, we're to do what we desire from others. We're to do that in everything towards everyone because of our Heavenly Father. And we talked a lot, if you'll recall, about how our tendency is, I do unto others as they have done unto me. And that's not what we're called to do. So when Jesus says this in verse 12, and everything therefore treat people in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And we saw that this was tied directly to the previous verse. Look at verse 11 of chapter 7. You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who's in heaven and give what is good to those who ask him? In light of that, in everything, treat people. You see what's happening? He's already 
attached how we're to treat others to God who allows the sun to rise and set on the evil and on the good. And now in the same way, he's tying it again to our relationship with the Father, repeatedly, over and over again. We're to treat people. Notice there's no qualifier. Are they people? Then we are to treat them that way. Uh, recently, I, I had a phone problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have a Pixel, okay? I just want you to know that. I'm proud of it. You're all looking like, what's that? It's, it's a phone made by Google, if you don't know what that is. I was having an issue. I was having a problem. So I decided to go to Google, right? Because Google is like the tech info king of, you know, planet Earth right now, practically. I'm going to go, hey, what's, what's wrong with my phone? So I go online, and there's a little chat thing. And I, and I hop in, and I'm like, yes, I have a problem with my phone. I think it's the battery. And the thing responds, you know, hi, my name is Linda, and I'm going to help you, you know, with your phone. Thank you, Linda. So we start going back and forth on what's the problem, what's the problem, what's the problem, right? And I start getting these responses. And they're sort of like, did she just hear what I said or not? Um, I had to re-explain something like multiple times. And then each time I would respond, there was like, thank you for bringing up that point. And I start thinking to myself, am I talking to a person here? <laughs> so eventually I just pop the question in the chat. Linda, are you a person? <laughs> or am I talking to a bot? Question mark. The response comes back, I am human. Okay. <laughs> At that point, I'm thinking of this verse, okay? She's an image bearer. I need to, you know, again, do I want to be polite with AI? Probably. I don't know. You know, I guess. But, but Jesus' point here is this. If the person's an image bearer, if that's what they are, and by the way, whoever the person is, they are, then we treat them in the way we would like to be treated, not in the way they are treating us because of our Heavenly Father, because of our connection with Him. And that's a beautiful thing. When we're living before our Heavenly Father, as Jesus describes here, we're freed up. We're adopted by Him. We've talked about that a lot before. And so because of that, this ongoing refrain of you personally, as a kingdom citizen, you have a new Father. You're free to live your life fully and exclusively before Him rather than the onlookers around you. You, you can give to Him, not because of the approval of people, but because your Father sees you. You can fast in secret without any preoccupation of how you appear to others because your Father sees you. You can pray and address Him as Father because you've been adopted in Jesus. He is your dad, your heavenly Father. You can freely forgive others because your Father has overwhelmingly forgiven you. You can live free of anxiety because your Father knows all you need even before you ask Him. You can trust your Father when you do ask Him knowing that He is good and He delights in your asking. He may say yes. He may say no. He might say wait. Maybe that's the hardest one. But He always hears your prayer. And so we look at that and we see that throughout this final chapter, Jesus is saying, because of who he is and because of your connection with him, you live with others in a different way. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, is that us? 
that how we're living? What's it like in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces? Are we living out what Christ has done in us? Are we demonstrating the fact that we're kingdom citizens? As Jesus concludes the entire sermon, he really draws out these beautiful, stark contrasts. Essentially, he says this, there are two gates leading to two paths resulting in two destinations. Look at verse 13 of chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The parallels are as stark as they are disturbing if we really listen. There's two gates. There's this broad one. Everyone can see it. You can take all your stuff with you. It's great. You do what you want. Leads to a broad road. Everyone's on it. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's going that way. And yet it leads to destruction. It leads to hell. It leads to eternal damnation apart from God. It leads to judgment by the holy, holy, holy God against sinners. And that's all of us. Or there's another path. It's a narrow gate. It leads to a narrow way. That narrow way is really a depiction almost of if you have two like sheer rock walls and a small path in between them. That's the idea. You can't take all your stuff with you. It won't fit. You got to leave it and move through. And yet, through this narrow gate on this narrow path, what does it result in? Not destruction, but eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The people of the early church, you know what they were known as by many? People of the way. It's because of Jesus' words here. Which path are you on? You realize it's determined by which gate you went through. And there's only one narrow gate that leads to life. And that's Jesus. And the call to you today is that you would enter through him. Do so today. The invitation from him is wide open. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him today. Embark upon the way. And know what it is to receive eternal life in him. The forgiveness of your sins. The bringing of you into his family. And life eternal. But he goes on with other contrasts here. He says as well, there's actually two kinds of trees that produce two kinds of fruit. And there he's describing the false teachers. He's saying, you're going to know the teachers by their fruit. Which kind of fruit are you looking for? What kind of teachers are you listening to? 
And then he concludes with two builders who build on two foundations, either sand or rock. Those that build on the sand are those that are not listening to the words of Jesus. Those who build on the rock are receiving his words and taking action on them. Responding to his words. It's one thing to sit there. Many sat there that day going, wow, that was amazing. That was great. And they walked away and nothing changed. Lord, protect us from being that kind of person. Just hearing, but not living it out. Those that build on the rock are those who hear his words and acts on them. And when the storm comes, be it a storm of life or the coming judgment of the living God, that house built on the rock stands. As we were looking at this section, we saw that there were, first of all, two inadequate indicators of genuine faith. One was merely saying the right things. The other was merely hearing the right things. And there's one decisive indicator of genuine faith, and that's living out what Jesus says. Where are you today? We come now to a time of the Lord's table. And if you haven't yet picked up some of the elements that are out there in the foyer area, go ahead and do that. But as we come to the Lord's table, we think about all that Jesus has shared with us through this amazing Sermon on the Mount and what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And if you're here today and you've received Jesus by faith and you've demonstrated that faith through baptism, uh, we would just be glad that you would participate in terms of partaking of the elements. If you have not or you're not prepared today to partake in the same way, we're glad that you're here. And we'd ask that you'd use this time to really join us, come to the table, but come not to partake of the elements, but to seek him, to draw near to him, to remember his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and the hope that we have in him alone. Uh, But as we think about what Christ has accomplished and remember him. Let's go before him now and just maybe even have in front of you open this sermon and look at it. If there's areas in which the spirit has been prompting your heart and convicting you, go to him in confession now. And let's confess privately, quietly in prayer our sins before God. Let's seek him together. Heavenly Father, creator of all things, we thank you that you are the author of all existence. You're the source of all blessing. We adore you for making us capable of knowing you, for giving us reason and conscience, and for leading us to desire you. We praise you for the revelation of yourself in the gospel, for your heart as a dwelling place of pity, for your thoughts as peace towards us, for your patience and your graciousness, for the vastness of your mercy in Christ. And our, our, our conscience has been moved to know how the guilty like us can be pardoned, how the unholy can be sanctified, how the poor can be enriched because of you. 
And so we pray, Lord, that in this time as we confess our sins to you, the ways in which we have not lived out our kingdom citizenship, the ways in which we have not honored you, we, we thank you that because of who you are and because of the sacrifice made, because the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world, because Jesus was forsaken by you on the cross, in him now we confess to you and, and we receive forgiveness and we remember in this moment that sacrifice and we give you great praise in the name of Jesus the lamb slain in our place amen go ahead and open up your and let's partake together as we partake of the cup let's rejoice in what Jesus has accomplished. We came to him impoverished of spirit, spiritual beggars with nothing, and yet, notice, when we come to him in that way, what does he do? He gives us the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) How's that for a stark contrast? We come to him mourning over our sin. What does he do? We're comforted. By him. And from there on, as those who receive mercy from him and are given purity of heart and given a righteousness that's his, that's not even ours, we have every reason to thank him. So let's praise him together in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would keep us always longing for you because of your immense blessing and grace and gift in Christ. We thank you for the the present salvation we enjoy as the Holy Spirit comforts us and as we rejoice in you for all the spiritual graces and blessings you've given us, for the help that you've given us, for the resurrection power you infuse into us as we walk with you. Give us the grace to cherish the simplicity of and beauty of the gospel and help us to live each and every day, every moment even, before you. Uh, That we would be those who have our affections set on the things above. That we would turn away from the forbidden follies and vanities of of this world. That, That we would be not only those who partake of grace, but also who extend grace to others that we would be prepared to bear evil and and also to do good. Lord, we thank you that you're the one who causes us to become the people you've called us to be. And so in the name of Jesus, we ask that he would be glorified in us as we are in him. Amen. We're going to have a time to sing. So uh, Andrew's going to come up and we're going to respond in song.